Hello and welcome to The Forge. My name is James and this is the place where I teach verse by verse through the Bible. I am a retired U.S. Air Force Master Sergeant who went on to serve the Lord's Church as an assistant pastor, worship leader, and youth pastor. During my time in these roles, I finished seminary and I hold a Master of Arts in Biblical Studies and a Master of Divinity. I've been involved in ministry in some form for over 25 years, and it is my hope that this podcast will be a blessing to you as I teach from God's Word, the Bible. Forge exists to serve those whom the Holy Spirit is calling into a relationship with God through His Son, Jesus Christ. This is done through biblical teaching so that individuals understand God's forgiveness, live in its reality, and overcome the wounds caused by bondage to sin. I will always hold to the truth found in scriptures, and a summary of my doctrinal statement is worded perfectly in the five solas of the Reformation. I believe Christians experience gratefulness and renewed purpose as they are encouraged by the words of life, which spring from the Bible. I pray that this podcast plays a role in God's ongoing work in your life. Don't forget to look in the show notes for links to the podcast website where you can leave a donation or leave a voice message with questions. I will be collecting questions for a future Q&A podcast. Also, please leave a review on whatever platform you are using. That and telling others about this podcast are the two biggest things you can do for me. Now grab your Bible and get ready for a verse-by-verse study. May God bless the reading and the hearing of His Word. Welcome back, everyone, to another exciting study in the book of Genesis. Today we are in chapter 29, and I am thrilled to be with you. As usual, we are thankful to God for His Word, which He and His great love has seen fit to place in our hands. And it's our desire here at The Forge that all of us, would approach the Bible with a certain reverence, being careful to keep its words within the context uh, that they were originally penned. And it is my hope that as you go through these episodes with me, that you are encouraged in your walk with Christ. The Bible is rich in truth, and it's full of the untold depths of God. You know, someone has asked, Why do you read that same book over and over? I just don't understand you born again types. You're always reading the Bible. I mean, I read it once and that's what you do. You get a book and you read it one time. And friends, what the non-believer does not see is that this book is alive. And each time you go through it, if you've been made alive in Christ, you find something, you find something there that you didn't see. 
the last time that you read it because the Holy Spirit shows you through his revelation another truth, another golden nugget, if you will, another deep and meaningful point. It's not that we come up with some new doctrine, but that the doctrine that we already hold to and the doctrine that we already know, it becomes more deep, more full, even richer, and even more lovely and more wonderful than it was at the first. So with that frame of mind, let us now read and hear the words of the one true and only living God. Genesis chapter 29. So Jacob went on his journey and came to the land of the people of the east. And he looked and saw a well in the field, and behold, there were three flocks of sheep lying by it, for out of that well they watered the flocks. A large stone was on the well's mouth. Now all the flocks would be gathered there, and they would roll the stone from the well's mouth water the sheep, and put the stone back in its place on the well's mouth. And Jacob said to them, My brethren, where are you from? And they said, We are from Haran. Then he said to them, Do you know Laban, the son of Nahor? And they said, We know him. So he said to them, Is he well? And they said, He is well. And look, his daughter Rachel is coming with the sheep. Then he said, Look, it is still high day. It is not time for the cattle to be gathered together. Water the sheep and go and feed them. But they said, We cannot until all the flocks are gathered together and they have rolled the stone from the well's mouth. Then we water the sheep. Now, while he was still speaking with them, Rachel came with her father's sheep, for she was a shepherdess. And it came to pass when Jacob saw Rachel, the daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, and the sheep of Laban, his mother's brother, that Jacob went near and rolled the stone from the well's mouth and watered the flock of Laban, his mother's brother. Then Jacob kissed Rachel and lift up his voice and wept. And Jacob told Rachel that he was her father's relative and that he was Rebekah's son. So she ran and told her father. Then it came to pass when Laban heard the report about Jacob, his sister's son, that he ran to meet him and embraced him and kissed him and brought him to his house. So he told Laban all these things. And Laban said to him, Surely you are my bone and my flesh. And he stayed with him for a month. Then Laban said to Jacob, Because you are my relative, should you therefore serve me for nothing? Tell me, what should your wages be? Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the elder was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah's eyes were delicate, but Rachel was beautiful of form and appearance. Now Jacob loved Rachel, so he said, I will serve you seven years for Rachel, your younger daughter. And Laban said, It is better that I give her to you than I should give her to another man. Stay with me. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed only a few days to him because of the love he had for her. 
Then Jacob said to Laban, Give me my wife, for my days are fulfilled, that I may go into her. And Laban gathered together all the men of the place and made a feast. Now it came to pass in the evening that he took Leah, his daughter, and brought her to Jacob, and he went into her. And Laban gave his maid Zilpah to his daughter Leah as a maid. So it came to pass in the morning that, behold, it was Leah. And he said to Laban, What is this you have done to me? Was it not for Rachel that I served you? Why then have you deceived me? And Laban said, It must not be done so in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. Fulfill her week, and we will give you this one also for the service, which you will serve with me still another seven years. Then Jacob did so and fulfilled her week. So he gave him his daughter Rachel, his wife also. And Laban gave his maid Bilhah to his daughter Rachel as maid. Then Jacob also went into Rachel, and he also loved Rachel more than Leah. And he served with Laban still another seven years. When the Lord saw that Leah was unloved, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. So Leah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Reuben, for she said, The Lord has surely looked on my affliction. Now, therefore, my husband will love me. Then she conceived again and bore a son and said, Because the Lord has heard that I am unloved, he has therefore given me this son also. And she called his name Simeon. She conceived again and bore a son and said, Now this time my husband will become attached to me because I have borne him three sons. Therefore his name was called Levi. And she conceived again and bore a son and said, Now I will praise the Lord. Therefore she called his name Judah. Then she stopped bearing. As for the reading of God's word, as we say often on this podcast, may he bless the reading and the hearing of it. What an amazing story begins to unfold here in chapter 29. Jacob sees Rachel, the daughter of Laban, and it may be confusing for some, but Laban is a relative to Jacob. The chapter we just read tells us what the relationship is. Can you remember who Laban is within the family tree? Well, let me help you. Laban is the brother of Rebekah, and Rebekah is Jacob's mother. This makes Laban the uncle of Jacob. And we see God's providence in Jacob's life here already. He meets Rachel, his cousin, and the stage is soon set for the deceiver, Jacob, to now become the one who is deceived. In spite of the way things are about to unfold, we can still see God's promise and God's purpose. Sovereign over Jacob. And he is working all things for Jacob's good and for his glory. He promised to be with Jacob, and we will see that God once again keeps his 
promises. It appears from our reading that the men tending the flocks would gather around this stone which covered the well. And when there were enough men, when the men came in from gathering their flocks, there would be enough men there, they would move the stone together. And so it is here that we see Jacob in this feat of man's strength, removing the stone. And Rachel, who was on the scene at this point, no doubt she sees this. And as we've already brought out, Rachel is Jacob's cousin. Jacob stays on here as a house guest of Laban, his uncle, for a month. But I want us to notice some things here about Jacob and his meeting of Rachel at the well. And see if this maybe sounds a little familiar to you. It should sound familiar to you. Remember, Abraham sent his servant to go find a wife for his son, Isaac. Where did the servant find the wife? That's right. He found her at a well. And if you go back to Genesis 24 and read the whole chapter again, We've already covered it here on a previous episode, but in that chapter, you will find a prayer. The servant sent by the father, Abraham, prays, and he asks God for God's favor. And no doubt Abraham had been praying and trusting God for the wife of God's own choosing for the son of promise, Isaac. But we see a contrast here in chapter 29. There is no record of Isaac praying for his son, Jacob's wife. While Jacob is sent away, and he is sent away with a blessing, we should note here that he's still sent away. He is somewhat on his own. And there was no prayerful servant to help. There was no helper that went ahead. Yet God, in his providence, guides this meeting between Jacob and Rachel. Here we see that not only did God have a plan, but that he is merciful and he is full of grace toward his chosen. And it's important to understand also as we look at this, some historical background and some culture at this point. We're going to talk now about a dowry. And a dowry was basically an alimony in advance. See, if a man divorced his wife, she would have no place to go except to return to her father. And her father um, would have a dowry where he would have enough money to take care of the daughter since the husband was no longer going to do it because of the divorce. And you should also note that at this time in history and in this culture, it was probably the case that only men could initiate the divorce. A woman could not initiate the divorce. Jacob basically at this point in his life has nothing. So think of this as we make some more comparisons. You see, when Abraham sent his servant to get the wife of Isaac, 
the servant gave Rebecca golden rings. You remember? He gave her one for her nose, which seems a little strange to us, maybe not as strange (laughs) anymore. But Laban, as you may recall, was impressed by these gifts. And Rebecca was about to go marry a man of wealth. But now it seems to be Jacob's strength at moving the stone at the well is the thing that impresses Laban. So he was impressed a long time ago with Isaac's uh, apparent inheritance that he was going to be receiving from Abraham. But now we see Jacob has no gold. He has no rings to give to a potential future wife, but he does have strength and a strong man could be used to render service to, to Laban. So Jacob kind of seems to fit this bill. I need a strong man. Anybody who can move that stone could surely do some work for me. So the deal is struck. Jacob works for seven years for Laban with the understanding that when his work is complete, when the seven-year time period is up, he will have Rachel as a wife. And I don't want you to lose this, what's about to happen here. It's as if Jacob is working to build up a dowry for Rachel because he doesn't have one. Now, question is, did Laban keep the dowry money and the wealth that Jacob earned for him? I doubt it, seriously. It's almost as if Jacob is working on some sort of a payment plan, if you will. And the dowry should have been kept in a sort of what we might think of as a savings account, just in case things didn't work out between Jacob and Rachel. But as we are going to see, Laban doesn't really seem to be the kind of guy that would have a savings uh, built up for a dowry. While some point to the bad deal that Jacob is about to receive at the hand of his uncle, we should notice a few things that are kind of in the positive for Jacob. Uh, First off, Jacob had a job. Not only that, he leaves his troubles with Esau behind for a total of 20 years, as we will soon read as the story continues. And Laban did allow Jacob to marry Rachel eventually, as well as Leah. And you know, in some way, it is actually a compliment to the character of Jacob that Laban thought him worthy to marry his daughters. Note what he says. He says, it is better that I give her to you than that I should give her to another man. Stay with me. So while it may be true that Laban didn't have the purest of intentions, there is something about Jacob that is, at least in the view of Laban, there is something good here. And so we should probably uh, get into the names a little bit here. We should probably note that at this point, uh, Rachel means you, 
and Leah means wild cow or wild ox. The Bible tells us here that Leah's eyes were delicate. And according to some scholars, the meaning of the Hebrew word here uh, that's actually used, they're not really certain about the meaning. And I've read that Leah's eyes being delicate means everything from weak to tender, delicate, dainty, and even lovely. And as we know in the English language, lovely um, is a far cry. And as far as a definition, it is a far cry from weak. Um, but something could be weak and lovely, I suppose, at the same time. But what's important for us to see here is that there is a comparison being made between these two sisters. While Leah probably had pretty eyes, that's what I think it means, it was Rachel who apparently, at least as far as Jacob was concerned, she was even more beautiful and more lovely. Rachel is described as having beauty in form. Simply put, she had a nice figure. And as we shall soon see, the physical beauty really and truly means very little. For those of us who have been around for a little while, we can tell you a pretty face does not mean a pretty heart. So after the seven years of labor, which Jacob provides for Laban, a wedding certainly does happen. And through a trick... Laban substitutes Leah for Rachel. Now remember, Jacob took advantage of his father Isaac's failing sight when he and his mother conspired to take the blessing which Isaac had intended for Esau. Now we see Laban using the cover of darkness to fool Jacob. Be careful what you do, friends. Be careful what you do. The sisters must have looked similar enough that Jacob was fooled. And again, this is where culture comes into play. There was no dating at this time in history. Jacob had not been dating Rachel for seven years. He would have had actually very little, if any, contact at all with her. In the nighttime darkness, with no electrical lighting and a veil to cover her face, plus possibly a similar body type. After all, they had probably other similar features. They were sisters. It would not be hard to pull it off. And I don't think we see it nearly as often as we should in our culture today, but there is still a custom of the bride wearing a veil over her face. And so Laban uses this custom, the cover of darkness and all of the rest of it to his advantage. Laban has a selfish, selfish intention from the beginning that now comes out. Laban, knowingly or not, he has introduced a source of constant competition, constant um, discord, if you wanted to say it that way, a rivalry into Jacob's life and into Jacob's family. And I have no doubt that Jacob remembers the trick 
that he played on Esau and he played on his own father just seven years ago. Don't you know he had to be thinking, I remember when I did something very similar. And think about Leah here. She is unloved. How do you think she feels? She knows that Jacob didn't work for seven years for her. And she knows that her father, Laban, has done this sneaky thing. She knows that while Jacob is making love to her, he is thinking about Rachel. He thinks he's with Rachel. Leah may have been a number of things throughout her life, but one thing I feel confident Leah was not stupid, okay? She was not deceived by Laban, and we can only speculate how she must have felt knowing that the only way that she got a husband was through the trick of her father. The father had to sneak away to give her away. And now Jacob serves for another seven years for the one that he really wanted to begin with, Rachel. So let's take a moment here and let's examine this trick a little bit further, the, the deception which Laban played on Jacob here. Laban states, It must not be done so in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. What irony. Do you catch the irony here? Look at Jacob's situation here. He had stolen the blessing which was reserved for the firstborn. Remember, he stole it from Esau and from Isaac. And remember, as we saw when Jacob left home, he was going to be blessed by his father anyway. And the blessings which were promised to Jacob had nothing to do with birth order. Jacob deceived his own father to uphold the custom custom of the elder son. So, in other words, his father was going to uphold this custom of the elder, and Jacob used that to deceive his father. And now Laban has done the same thing to Jacob. Coming up with this custom, whether it was true or not, about the daughter, uh, older daughter having to be given away first, but Laban says she's the oldest. She has to be given away first. It's the same principle involved here. And you know Jacob had to think about these things. So now it's time for a great question that you've probably been thinking about. And if you haven't been thinking about it, I'm going to bring it up. So if you're listening to this, you're going to think about it. What does the Bible teach about having more than one wife? Does the Bible teach against having more than one wife? We see these men here, these patriarchs. Um, we would consider them to be great men of the faith. We would consider them to be God's chosen. And here they are with more than one wife. Well, let's see what the Bible states and other passages. And guys, what I'm going to do here, we're going to use the Bible to interpret the Bible. It's real easy to take one thing out of context. One of the things we've talked about here, we talked about it at the beginning of the uh, episode. We want to keep scripture within context. 
So Deuteronomy chapter 17, verse 17 states, Neither shall he multiply wives for himself, lest his heart turn away, nor shall he greatly multiply silver and gold for himself. Now that's only one verse, and you can go read the whole chapter for proper context. But this verse has idolatry in view. Idolatry is in mind here, but it's also instruction for a king. But the principle here is the same. God is saying, don't multiply wives for yourself. So also consider Malachi chapter 2, verse 14. He says, yet you say, for what reason? Because the Lord has been witness between you and the wife of your youth, with whom you have dealt treacherously. Yet she is your companion and your wife by covenant. But did he not make them one, and that he there is God, but did God not make them one, having a remnant of the Spirit? And why one? God, he, seeks godly offspring. Therefore take heed to your spirit, and let none deal treacherously with the wife of his youth. For the Lord God of Israel says that he hates divorce, for it covers one's garment with violence. So I would simply point out here that the prophet here is is talking about a covenant relationship. He's talking about the marriage relationship, and it is to be a mirror image of God's covenant with his people. What am I saying? I'm saying God's ideal is one man and one woman for life. I gave you two Old Testament passages here. In every single place where we read of polygamy in the Bible, it only brings heartache, it brings pain, deeply hurt feelings. You see, God created Adam and Eve. He didn't create Adam and Eve 1 and Eve 2 and Eve 3 and so on. And I just... I, I just was only using Old Testament passages there, but let's look at the New Testament as well. You can look in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 2. You can look in Titus 1, 6. The New Testament teaches a husband of one wife. And in doing so, the New Testament is consistent with the Old Testament. And since I'm on this subject, let me point out um, the Westminster Confession uh, paragraph 24.2, it says marriage was ordained for the mutual help of the husband and wife, for the increase of mankind with a legitimate issue, and of the church with an holy seed, and for preventing uncleanness. So perhaps in a future episode, I'll address the issue of divorce and remarriage. But for now, and to answer the question of multiple wives here at the same time, as we see these patriarchs here in the Old Testament doing this, let me just say that any combination of the marriage relationship other than one biological man for one biological woman for life until death do us part, it is always deplorable, and it is a disruption of God's ideal. So while we read of Jacob and his two wives, and eventually their two maidservants, 
This was never God's ideal situation. Why do I bring this up? Because once again, we're going to see God using less than perfect people to bring about his purposes. We're going to see that his covenant people are in that relationship with him because of his covenant, not because of their actions, or we could even say in spite of their sinful actions, God remains true to his covenant. Our God is a covenant-keeping God, and friends, you and I are incapable of keeping a covenant with a holy God. We cannot do it. That is why there is the new covenant purchased in the blood of Christ. It is in him that we cling to. It is in him that we have a, a new and everlasting covenant that we have been purchased, paid for, the blood of the innocent given for the life of a guilty sinner. Praise the King. So move on here in verses 26 and in verse 27, we hear Laban's explanation of why Leah was given to Jacob as a wife. And of course, we've talked about this already. Laban states that it's their custom, or we could think of it as a custom for the land where he lives, uh, for the oldest daughter to be married first. And what he's saying here is, it's just not right, Jacob, for me to do this. So Laban tells Jacob to continue on with the wedding feast, which would be one full week of celebration. Some have called this the bridal week. It's as if Laban is saying, okay, Jacob, just go ahead and finish out the whole ceremony and then I'll let you have Rachel. But what's really being celebrated here? Do you think that Leah was happy? Do you think Jacob was happy? I would suggest to you that what's really being celebrated here is Laban got one over on Jacob. So Laban is seen as a clever guy, a wise guy. And Jacob is a big joke at this point. Jacob is humiliated. Of course, the scriptures do not say this, but it would be fitting, and it certainly is within human nature. It's reasonable that there would be men there saying to Jacob, hey, he got you. He tricked you. <laughs> Laban pulled a fast one on you. You thought you were getting uh, Rachel, but you ended up getting Leah. Come on, dude. You know, that's funny. You know, it was a joke at Jacob's expense. And we should remember that for that first seven years, the Bible tells us that for Jacob, it was just like a few days. Why? Because he had so much love for Rachel. It was just a few days. Oh, how romantic. And I wonder how he felt knowing that there's yet another seven years in front of him. Again, time passes. And I would remind you here that, as always, I bring this up a lot in the book of Genesis, you're getting a summary. You're not getting every last possible little tiny detail. So we see here that in verse 32, Leah now thinks her husband would love her. Why? Because she has a son. She names him Reuben, which literally means, look, 
I have a son or behold a son. I have a son, Leah says. And then in verse 33, we see the birth of another son, Simeon. And his name means hearing. And it's interesting, the phrase, I am unloved here that we see where where she says, you know, the Lord has finally heard that I am unloved. It is actually translated as I am hated in the old King James. Leah knows she is not loved as much as her sister. And with the birth of her son, Simeon, she recognizes that God has heard her, that she is unloved. Convinced that a third son would certainly do the trick. The the third son will bind Jacob to me, she must be thinking. And we find in verse 34, she names him Levi. And Levi means joined. So look at this. I have a son. God has heard me. Now with this third son... My husband will be joined to me. Verse 35 gives us an account of the fourth and final son born to Leah here in this section of her story. And his name is Judah, which means praise the Lord. And Lord here, again, is in all capital letters, praise Adonai. So through these names, we can see a bit of transition that's taking place, I believe, in the life of Leah. First, there's, look, I have a son, but nobody really noticed. And so she gets a second son, and she says, hearing, in a manner of speaking, it seems like poor Leah is saying, no one noticed here, but God heard me. God heard that I'm unloved, and he gave us a second son. And then with son number three, she says, this is the one. His name is going to be joined because I'm joined, finally joined to my husband, Jacob. Surely Jacob will love me now. And then we can almost hear it being run together as a, as a sentence between the, the son's names and the definition of their names. You know, Jacob is obviously having a normal husband and wife relation with Leah in the physical sense, but she knows again that Jacob did not work for her. She knows finally here at the end of this chapter, she cannot force Jacob to love her. And with the name of that fourth son, the final one for this chapter, and there will be more in the future, but for this chapter, he's the last one. It seems by now that Leah understands God loves her and that is good enough. You know what, Jacob, it would have been really sweet to have you, but I have God. I have God's love and that is enough. And for those who are students of the Bible, and for those who already know something about Israel, you're going to notice that these four sons are the names of four tribes of Israel and not just any old tribe of Israel. Levi is where the priests 
come from. And Judah is where the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, comes from. The Messiah is the line of the tribe of who? The lion of the tribe of Judah. So we see that even though Jacob did not truly love Leah, yet God had a very special role for Leah in the building up of Israel. She not only has four sons of Jacob, but before we, before we reach the end, you're going to see that she has six sons of Jacob. That is half of the tribes of Israel. Where do they come from? They come from Leah. And we will see in coming verses that there's a rivalry that will be, that comes between these half brothers of different mothers, but all from Jacob. And the rivalry will continue on into the future as the brothers actually become the tribes of Israel. And all of this can be traced back to a rivalry between these two women, Leah and Rachel. And these two women will compete for Jacob's affections in the coming verses as we read on. They will even drag their maidservants into it. Zilpah, uh, Leah's maid, and Billa, Rachel's maid, will end up also having sons with Jacob. What a mess. What a mess is coming to the life of the family of Jacob. And at this point in the story, we've noticed very little prayer time from Jacob. We've noticed very little prayer time from Isaac. The last prayer we know of for Jacob was before he made it to Laban's country when he attempted to make a deal with God, almost as if he was saying, God, if you'll do this for me, then you will be my God. And so we come to the end of another episode of The Forge. So what's our takeaway from this today? Well, there's many lessons here. But one thing we can know for sure is that our hope and our satisfaction is found in Christ alone. Leah looked for fulfillment in her husband. And it's a sad story if you pause and think about it. Who among us does not want to be loved? It's a natural thing. It's natural that we should want children. But our hope and our fulfillment as a person is not in these things. But it is in the Lord Jesus Christ. God is the source of all completeness and all contentment. If you're looking for anything else to fill the void in your life, take a lesson from the life of Leah. God is your satisfaction. Find your identity not in the cares and not in the people of this life, but in Christ alone. again for listening to the forge podcast and don't forget to leave a review with comments let me hear from you 
leave a voice message through the link. I hope and pray that you find ways to apply the truths of God's Word in daily living. Remember, dear Christian, you are forgiven. It is by grace that you've been saved through faith. May you grow in Christ in the study of the Bible and truly overcome wounds that were caused by sinful choices and actions of the past. I also pray that you are always reforming, seeking to glorify God in all that you say and do. Remember to be grateful to God for what he is working out not only in you but in all his creation as well. And lastly, be encouraged. Encouraged to serve God and others as you grow in him.